Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court, in which Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Thomas joined. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion. Justice Sotomayor filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Kagan joined and in which Justice Jackson joined as it applies to number 21-707. Justice Jackson filed a dissenting opinion in number 21-707 in which Justices Sotomayor and Kagan joined. Justice Jackson took no part in the consideration or decision of the case in number 20-1199. In these cases, we consider whether the admission systems used by Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, two of the oldest institutions of higher learning in the United States, are lawful under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Part 1. Section A. Founded in 1636, Harvard College has one of the most selective application processes in the country. Over 60,000 people applied to the school last year. Fewer than 2,000 were admitted. Gaining admission to Harvard is thus no easy feat. It can depend on having excellent grades glowing recommendation letters, or overcoming significant adversity. It can also depend on your race. The admissions process at Harvard works as follows. Every application is initially screened by a first reader, who assigns scores in six categories, academic, extracurricular, athletic, school support, personal, and overall. A rating of 1 is the best. A rating of 6 is the worst. In the academic category, for example, a 1 signifies near-perfect standardized test scores and grades. In the extracurricular category, it indicates truly unusual achievement. And in the personal category, it denotes outstanding attributes like maturity, integrity, leadership, kindness, and courage. A score of 1 on the overall rating, a composite of the five other ratings, signifies an exceptional candidate with more than 90% chance of admission. In assigning the overall rating, the readers can and do take an applicant's race into account. Once the first read process is complete, Harvard convenes admissions subcommittees. Each subcommittee meets for three to five days and evaluates all applicants from a particular geographic area. The subcommittees are responsible for making recommendations to the full admissions committee. The subcommittees can and do take an applicant's race into account when making their recommendations. The next step of the Harvard process is the full committee meeting, the committee has 40 members, and its discussion centers around the applicants who have been recommended by the regional subcommittees. At the beginning of the meeting, the committee discusses the relative breakdown of applicants by race. 
The goal, according to Harvard's director of admissions, is to make sure that Harvard does not have a dramatic drop-off in minority admissions from the prior class. Each applicant considered by the full committee is discussed one by one, and every member of the committee must vote on admission. Only when an applicant secures a majority of the full committee's votes is he or she tentatively accepted for admission. At the end of the full committee meeting, the racial composition of the pool of tentatively admitted students is disclosed to the committee. The final stage of Harvard's process is called the LOP, during which the list of tentatively admitted students is winnowed further to arrive at the final class. Any applicants that Harvard considers cutting at this stage are placed on a LOP list, which contains only four pieces of information. Legacy status, recruited athlete status, financial aid eligibility, and race. The full committee decides as a group which students to LOP. In doing so, the committee can and does take race into account. Once the LOP process is complete, Harvard's admitted class is set. In the Harvard admissions process, race is a determinative tip for a significant percentage of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants. Section B. Founded shortly after the Constitution was ratified, the University of North Carolina, UNC, prides itself on being the nation's first public university. Like Harvard, UNC's admissions process is highly selective. In a typical year, the school receives approximately 43,500 applications for its freshman class of 4,200. Every application the university receives is initially reviewed by one of approximately 40 admissions office readers, each of whom reviews roughly five applications per hour. Readers are required to consider race and ethnicity as one factor in their review. Other factors include academic performance and rigor, standardized testing results, extracurricular involvement, essay quality, personal factors, and student background. Readers are responsible for providing numerical ratings for the academic, extracurricular, personal, and essay categories. During the years at issue in this litigation, underrepresented minority students were more likely to score highly on their personal ratings than their white and Asian American peers, but were more likely to be rated lower by UNC readers on their academic program, academic performance, extracurricular activities, and essays. After assessing an applicant's materials along these lines, the reader formulates an opinion about whether the student should be offered admission and then writes a comment defending his or her recommendation decision. In making that decision, readers may offer students a plus based on their race, which may be significant in an individual case. The admissions decisions made by the first readers are, in most cases, provisionally final. Following the first read process, applications then go to a process called school group review, 
where a committee composed of experienced staff members reviews every initial decision. The review committee receives a report on each student which contains, among other things, their class rank, GPA, and test scores, the ratings assigned to them by their initial readers, and their status as residents, legacies, or special recruits. The review committee either approves or rejects each admission recommendation made by the first reader, after which the admissions decisions are finalized. In making those decisions, the review committee may also consider the applicant's race. Section C. Petitioner Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, is a nonprofit organization founded in 2014 whose purpose is to defend human and civil rights secured by law, including the right of individuals to equal protection under the law. In November 2014, SFFA filed separate lawsuits against Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, arguing that their race-based admissions programs violated, respectively, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The district courts in both cases held bench trials to evaluate SFFA's claims. Trial in the Harvard case lasted 15 days and included testimony from 30 witnesses, after which the court concluded that Harvard's admission program comported with our precedents on the use of race in college admissions. The First Circuit affirmed that determination. Similarly, in the UNC case, the district court concluded after an eight-day trial that UNC's admissions program was permissible under the Equal Protection Clause. We granted certiorari in the Harvard case and certiorari before judgment in the UNC case. Part 2 before turning to the merits, we must assure ourselves of our jurisdiction. UNC argues that SFFA lacks standing to bring its claims because it is not a genuine membership organization. Every court to have considered this argument has rejected it, and so do we. Article 3 of the Constitution limits the judicial power of the United States to cases or controversies ensuring that federal courts act only as a necessity in the determination of real, earnest, and vital disputes. To state a case or controversy under Article III, a plaintiff must establish standing. That, in turn, requires a plaintiff to demonstrate that it has, one, suffered an injury, in fact, two, that it is fairly traceable to the challenged conduct of the defendant, and three, that it is likely to be redressed by a favorable judicial decision. In cases like these where the plaintiff is an organization, the standing requirements of Article Three can be satisfied in two ways. Either the organization can claim that it suffered an injury in its own right, or alternatively, it can assert standing solely as the representative of its members. The latter approach is known as representational or organizational standing. 
To invoke it, an organization must demonstrate that a. its members would otherwise have standing to sue in their own right, b. the interests it seeks to protect are germane to the organization's purpose, and c. neither the claim asserted nor the relief requested requires the participation of individual members in the lawsuit. Respondents do not contest that SFFA satisfies the three-part test for organizational standing articulated in Hunt v. Washington State Apple Advertising Commission, 1977. And like the courts below, we find no basis in the record to conclude otherwise. Respondents instead argue that SFFA was not a genuine membership organization when it filed suit, and thus that it could not invoke the doctrine of organizational standing in the first place. According to respondents, our decision in Hunt established that groups qualify as genuine membership organizations only if they are controlled and funded by their members. And because SFFA's members did neither at the time this litigation commenced, respondents' argument goes, SFFA could not represent its members for purposes of Article III standing. Hunt involved the Washington State Apple Advertising Commission, a state agency whose purpose was to protect the local Apple industry. The commission brought suit challenging a North Carolina statute that imposed labeling requirements on containers of apples sold in that state. The commission argued that it had standing to challenge the requirement on behalf of Washington's apple industry. We recognized, however, that as a state agency, the commission was not a traditional voluntary membership organization, for it had no members at all. As a result, we could not easily apply the three-part test for organizational standing, which asks whether an organization's members have standing. We nevertheless concluded that the commission had standing because the apple growers and dealers it represented were effectively members of the commission. The growers and dealers alone elected the members of the commission, alone served on the commission, and alone financed its activities. They possessed, in other words, all of the indicia of membership. The commission was therefore a genuine membership organization in substance, if not in form. And it was clearly entitled to rely on the doctrine of organizational standing under the three-part test recounted above. The indicia of membership analysis employed in Hunt has no applicability in these cases. Here, SFFA is indisputably a voluntary membership organization with identifiable members. It is not, as in Hunt, a state agency that conceitedly has no members. As the First Circuit in the Harvard litigation observed, at the time SFFA filed suit, it was a validly incorporated 501c3 nonprofit with 47 members who joined voluntarily to support its mission. Meanwhile, in the UNC litigation, SFFA represented four members in particular, high school graduates who were denied admission to UNC. 
Those members filed declarations with the district court stating that they have voluntarily joined SFFA. They support its mission. They receive updates about the status of the case from SFFA's president, and they have had the opportunity to have input and direction on SFFA's case. Whereas here, an organization has identified members and represents them in good faith, our cases do not require further scrutiny into how the organization operates. Because SFFA complies with the standing requirements demanded of organizational plaintiffs in Hunt, its obligations under Article 3 are satisfied. This opinion has been divided into multiple parts, and we've just come to the end of the first. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.